You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. You're listening to another explosive episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and if I sound a little bit wiser, if I sound a little bit more authoritative, if I sound a little tough but fair, uh, it's because I I became a father this week. Uh, Mazel tov! Thank you, sir. My daughter was uh, kind and smart enough to be born on Tuesday of last week, so yeah. Off to a good start. I know all of the listeners out there are pleased that she did not disrupt the weekly format and schedule of the co-main event podcast joining me as always joining you as always i should say your other co-host for the cme from usa today and mmajunkie.com the lovely and talented ben folks ben how you doing this week i'm all right you do seem a little bit wiser though i was gonna say you seem like like now though i look at you and i see a man who has a lot to lose yeah i see a family man yeah man with responsibilities i'm like post chronic dre yeah you know you can't be out here in the streets taking these chances anymore you got a family to think about man you can't be out there hustling on the corner no that's true and that i think is going to be the the overriding topic of my next album yeah well i feel that that album will be relatively shitty but uh i i look forward to hearing it anyway chad dundas's detox <laughs> will be in stores sometime around Christmas 2018. Uh, anyway, coming up this week on this episode of the CME, a lot of mixed martial arts miscellanea, given that we are still in between events, so to speak. In round one, we'll talk about Brock Lesnar in the UFC's Corporate Hall of Fame. Will he get in? Does he deserve it? And if he does, would they have to put a giant Jack Link's beef jerky logo somewhere on those weirdo glass plaques that they give out to the guys? Have to or want to? Want to, maybe. Jimmy John. Put a big, big ass Jimmy John's logo yeah. on there. Maybe some kind of ammo ad. Yeah. Some hollow points. <laughs> In round number two, uh, would a Vitor Belfort victory over John Jones at UFC 152 be the biggest upset in MMA history and... Is that the best or worst case scenario for the main event of that show? In round number three, we'll talk about the ultimate fighter, Take Two. Uh, The UFC's popular reality show is prepping for its second season, which begins, I believe, this Friday, right? On FX? Yes. Uh, You know, what are the stakes for this episode and how many more seasons can we really sit around and watch the seemingly same 16 guys live in the same Las Vegas McMansion? We'll talk about all that and then some, but first, you know what time it is. It's listener mail time. This week's first question comes to us from James Hawkins, who asks us, During the year, I've noticed that you both haven't been to as many UFC events when compared to previous years. If this is the case, is there a reason behind it, and do you think it has affected your work in any way? Do you find it better to have attended a live event in order to properly write about it, or can you pretty easily cover it from the couch at home? That is very observant, I will say, of James Hawkins. Yes. Uh, And in fact, I will say... I have not been to any live UFC events during the calendar year 2012. Really? Not one? Not a single one. Uh, And not to let you too far behind the curtain, but just because (laughs) at the beginning of this year, uh, the the corporate power structure there at ESPN kind of limited our uh, travel budget. And so freelancers such as myself and Chuck Mindenhall have not been to a ton of events uh, this year. Well, I feel like I've been to some... uh... I, you know, I went all the way to Stockholm, so that was that definitely that counts as a trip. Let me tell you, 
but uh, yeah, maybe lately have not been to as many. Part of that, though, for me personally is due because, you know, I changed jobs and then there's a whole lot of corporate hoops you have to jump through just to get on their, you know, travel budget plan right. uh, when you work for a huge corporation as I do now. Um, so, yeah, some of it is just, you know, not for any real good reason that anybody cares to hear. But I do think it's interesting, the question about... Yes. Because I've wondered it myself. Yes, yes. Especially now that for most pay-per-view events, the press conference, you can watch it. You know, you can watch the stream of it. You can watch somebody's video of like a Dana White scrum afterwards if he does one. You can watch the weigh-ins. Uh, you know, you can sometimes somebody will even be streaming a workout or, you know, watch the videos from, from the workout scrums. Um, and then, of course, fight night stuff. So we are at kind of an unprecedented point for how much like information you can get from staying home and just having a working Internet connection. Right. And, you know, uh, even though we all when we do go to those live events, we all go to the, the open workouts and we all go to the press conferences and we all use the quotes from there to kind of stock the stories that we write. Uh, with with comments from the principals, from the guys who are going to be taking part in the event. But the truth is, like, you don't get a ton of groundbreaking stuff from those activities. You know what I mean? Like, no. that's and, it's, and, and historically, not that this is true just about the UFC, but like in sports in general, the reason that uh, organizations and PR people love press conferences is not only because you get to kill a lot of birds with one stone because you get everybody together in one room, but also because it's really hard to like get anything really usable or uh, I mean, not usable, but like get anything really like groundbreaking or provocative from those yeah. events. And if if a line of questioning crops up that that the principles don't like it, that the sources don't like, it's really easy to shut it down. Yeah. Well, and also you sometimes will see if they think that you're going to, we're going to get a chance to talk to a guy later on one-on-one, then nobody wants to necessarily use their best stuff in the press conference where everybody else gets the quote too. And, right. uh, you know, you don't, but also the thing is sometimes the USC will do the workout on you know one day and then the press conference on the next day. And sometimes people will be like, Oh man, wh- wh- how come nobody has any good questions in the press conference? It's because we asked them all the day before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it can get to be a long haul. Like, especially when yeah. you go to those, those smaller events, like uh, UFC on fuel, sometimes UFC on FX shows. Uh, and as, as an aside, ESPN is actually thinking about sending me to UFC on uh, FX in Minneapolis in huh. the beginning of October. So maybe I will get to get out and see some events before this year is over. There you go. Uh, but at, at those events, when there's only like two or three fights that they know that anybody cares about the fighters or that that's what the media is particularly in, particularly interested in, it can get to be a long haul when you see those dudes at the at the pre-fight press conference, at the uh, the the weigh-ins, at the open workouts. Yeah. And, and you're right. By the time you get to like the last pre-fight event, sometimes it's pretty much like everybody got together for nothing because yeah. nobody really has any questions. Well, I think my hypothesis on this is that the, the best reason to be there and the stuff that you get when you're on the scene that you don't get otherwise is not usually from the fighters who are actually fighting at that event because yeah. they, you know, they're, they're cutting weight. They're worried about other stuff. They're, you know, you're not getting the best interviews out of most guys at the time for obvious reasons. Uh, I think it's good to be there to get to talk to their trainers, to get to kind of just see the general atmosphere around their team. And also because, especially if a fight's in Las Vegas or something, there's always other fighters around. And if there's a, it's a sizable pay-per-view event, sponsors will bring in other guys who aren't fighting on that card and you can sit down with them uh you know one of the most interesting interviews i think i've ever done was with dan hardy uh in the lobby of 
a super nice hotel in Toronto where he wasn't on the card, but I think Zions or somebody had brought him in to do autograph signings or something like that. That's when, you know, you kind of get access to the other guys who aren't cutting weight and do actually have some time to sit down and talk to you and, and give you interesting stuff. I mean, it is good to be there, but I don't think, I think some of it, the fight week media stuff, I mean, the UFC is a well-oiled machine and uh, they just hammer that stuff out and you don't necessarily get anything too special. Yeah, and in terms of like actually watching the fights, as I believe we've said on here before, it's really, really cool to sit ringside and watch those fights live and in person. But from a standpoint of actually writing about them and kind of getting, having a good view and remembering what happened later when you have to sit down and describe it on paper, it's almost better to watch it on TV yeah. and to have a tape that you can rewind yes. and, and go back. Because yeah. you know, oftentimes you, you watch the fights and then you go to the press conference and then if you have a deadline, which still happens to some people, uh, you, you have to bang out your story in 45 minutes and suddenly you're you're, you're like... Was it a right hook that yeah. that guy got knocked out with? Well, it's like it's not only the rule that as soon as you look down at your laptop, you'll hear the crowd go crazy and you'll look up and somebody is unconscious. I mean, that'll that's just that's going to happen every time you look down at the laptop. Uh, but also, I've been in some times before where just your angle uh, all the way on one edge of press row. Uh, with like photographers and cameramen and stuff in your way, you just end up watching the little screen, you yeah. know, so you might as well be at home watching it. Question number two this week comes from Chris Casement. He says, I hear talk about a fighter union and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Personally, I'm not a fan of player associations. They have arguably created more problems than they have solved. We've seen lockouts in almost every major sport that has player unions, sometimes multiple times. Uh, we are all in favor of equal pay for fighters for sure and want them to be treated fairly, by, but these aren't auto workers. They are choosing to do this. Shouldn't we avoid this direction for the good of the sport? Wait a minute. <laughs> Are we implying that auto workers are not choosing to to be auto workers? They're just born into it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that he's implying that perhaps the economic strain on auto workers is a little is a little greater. Like maybe those guys, that's all they've got, that's all they have to make ends meet for the family. Uh, which oh yeah, for, there's a bunch of these fighters who would totally be lawyers if they weren't they weren't doing yeah, this. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say, I think that that is that is the case for maybe a lot more fighters than you would. Uh, yeah, hell, it's the case for me and you. If nobody was willing to pay us to write about MMA, what the hell will we do? Jesus Christ. You've got no skills. No yeah, marketable no, skills. That's right. That's true. I yeah. myself could be a street bum if I... Yeah. If I I'm, a, I'm a terrible employee. Yeah. Um, here's one thing, though, that I do want to mention about unions in general and player associations. I guess we should say off the top that I have said before on this podcast, and I do pretty firmly believe that you will never see a fighter's union in mixed martial arts for a lot of different reasons. Um but to speak about unions and, and player associations and stuff generally, I think we need to keep in mind that every modern advancement that we enjoy as workers has, came about because of collective bargaining, because of workers' rights to collective bargain, collectively bargain. Uh, Eight-hour workdays, minimum wages, child labor laws, all that stuff happened because of unions. And I feel like in this modern era, we've been tricked and duped into thinking that that we don't either don't need labor unions anymore or that they're not they're somehow not your friend. Uh, and that, folks, is a scam. Don't buy into that mindset. So I would say, generally speaking, I'm in favor of collectively bargaining and unions in all areas. And that extends to professional sports, even though we're talking about a lot more money. And especially in the mainstream sports like baseball and football, the guys are a lot richer in those sports. I would say, man, the money is there. 
and you either have a choice that either the players are going to get a lot of it or the owners are going to get a lot of it. And just to speak to my own viewpoint, I would rather rather have the players get it. Yeah. And as to, to apply that to mixed martial arts, I would rather have the fighters get a larger share of the pie than, you know, the executives just personally. Right. Well, and also, like you mentioned, you know, football, uh, they had, you know, they were lucky enough to be able to put a deal together uh, to start last season in time. Uh, but when you look at what the things that they accomplished in their collective bargaining, uh, for instance, I remember one of the big changes was their rules on healthcare when you can get covered under the NFL's health insurance program. And I can't remember exactly what the details were, but the old deal it was for so many years after your last season. It was like five years or maybe even ten years or something after after your last season in the NFL. And now it's like if you play three consecutive seasons or something along those lines. Um, again, I don't know the exact details, but now that you can get it for the rest of your life. Uh, and in Peter King's uh, Monday morning quarterback column, which is one of my favorites, uh, he was talking, he said he saw, you know, Eddie George on the sidelines uh, of a football game, in his words, looking like an Adonis. Uh, and his, his health benefits were due to run out, uh, you know, a year from then. And he pointed out to Peter King, look, now is not when I need it. I'm going to need it, you know, 15 or 20 years from now. That's real stuff. That is real helpful improvements accomplished by collective bargaining. So I don't think we should write it off and just say, well, hey, there might be, I mean, sure, if the fighters had a union, it might be a work stoppage at some point. It might come down to that. That would not be the end of the world. Yeah. If it got a better deal for the fighters and if it did not completely ruin the sport, I mean, hey, we've seen that stuff have negative impacts in other sports, but uh, I think that, it might be worth it if the fighters could get together on something. Again, I doubt that you'll see it, though, for the same reasons as you say. Not because it's not a good idea or not because it wouldn't help the fighters, but just because, especially in with the individual nature of this sport, uh, the fighters have a tough time banding together and, and sticking together on stuff like that. Uh, question three this week comes from Brady Carlson, who asks, If the champions of Bellator and the UFC had super fights, who would win? Uh, and just to refresh your memory in case you're not entirely sure who the champions over at Bellator are. Uh, that would be Junior Dos Santos versus Cole Conrad at, at heavyweight. John Jones versus uh, Christian M- Christian Mbumbo. Mbumbo. Let's yes. just skip that one. Yeah. Uh, at light heavyweight, mid, uh, the uh, welterweight would be GSP versus Ben Askren. Um, at lightweight, you would have Henderson versus Chandler, Ben Henderson versus Mike Chandler. Uh, featherweight would be uh, Aldo versus Curran, and uh, then you'd have Cruz versus Eduardo Dantes at uh, bantamweight. Uh, do they I, not? Do they not have a middleweight champion, or did I just skip that? Does Does Bellator not have a middleweight champion? I don't know. What's the status of Bellator's middleweight? Champion? I have no idea. I can't think of it right now. Anyway, well, to I, speak to the to speak to Brady's question, I think that there's actually a couple of better matchups in here than you might assume. Uh, the light heavyweight one, I think we can just go ahead and skip because I believe. John Jones would probably well, take I, that one walking you, away. As you were listing those, I was thinking, I don't, I don't hear a single one where I would favor the Bellator guy. Really? Yeah. Do you think maybe Cole Conrad could take Junior Dos Santos down and beat him? No. What about a uh, Ben Askren and GSP? GSP wins that. What about Mike Chandler and Ben? I, look, I'm. <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> we're breaking one of our solemn vows, aren't we? 
Uh, I think Asker and GSP and Mike Chandler versus Ben Henderson could be interesting. You know, Chandler is a guy. Chandler is a guy where it's tough to put him on the map. We don't really know how good he is just because he does fight over in Bellator, where the competition, you know, it's not stellar. He had the the one really really excellent performance in a fight of the year uh, candidate against Eddie Alvarez. But aside from that, we haven't seen him tested against what you might call like top flight lightweights. But I think Mike Chandler is good, and he is a big ass lightweight. Uh, He's good. He's definitely good, and he seems to be filling in what gaps there are in his, his game pretty quickly. Uh, but at the same time, I was thinking as you were reading off that list of, of hypothetical matchups, uh, hey, is this dude trying to make a point? Just trying to make a point about the, the difference in quality in the UFC and everywhere else. Well, that would be a fairly obvious point to make, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean it would be a kind see. of a clever way to go about it, I guess, uh, is see, what I'm saying. When I looked at the list, I thought... Uh, some of these matchups are a little bit more competitive than I would have expected them to be, given the giant uh, disparity in talent that you would expect between the UFC and any other organization uh, in in the in the sport. Now, you know, I've read some of the user comments on your stories. I know that you are a Zufa nut hugger. Uh, really? I, I I get back and forth. Sometimes I'm a Zufa nut hugger, and other times I'm I'm a I'm a UFC hater. Yeah, it's almost as if those internet commenters don't really know what they're talking yeah. about some of the time as if they're just saying stuff anyway uh we'll do one more question we're, we're running long on time but but we had four questions picked out so we might as well do them all this one is a long one it's from yotam wilson who asks uh with all the reasons brought up and discussed for the cancellation of ufc 151 i did not hear anyone mentioning that weight cutting is also to blame for the cancellation of ufc 151 how many light heavyweights can make 205 within eight days notice Obviously not many, or none at all from what I understand. This left the UFC to match a middleweight with an oversized light heavyweight, which is kind of old school, which I like, but probably does not, but probably is not the direction they want to take the UFC. It might not be the only reason UFC decided to call a middleweight to fight, but I thought it was worth mentioning and discussing. Let's get rid of weight cutting already. The benefits of doing so overcomes any negatives by a long shot. That is an interesting point about making it difficult to find somebody to, to fight John Jones for a light heavyweight title. Uh, I would argue that just practically, Leota Machida probably could have done it because uh, yeah. he doesn't get too big. Uh, and what did he come in at, like 201 for his last uh, light yeah, heavyweight he was fight? Light. Yeah, so he probably could have done it. On, and I think he turned it down for other reasons, obviously, because he wouldn't even take it when it was on more than a month's notice. But it is an interesting point. Because I remember talk, I just recently talked to Leonard Garcia about some of his, his thoughts on taking those short notice fights. And he was saying, I think he said he took one on eight days notice or somewhere around then. Uh, and how there just wasn't time to do anything but cut weight as yeah. soon as he heard that. He had, and he got the call Thanksgiving night after eating a huge Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and his manager called him up and said, what are you weigh right now? And he's like, well, shit. You know? And so he said that it was... And, you know, an interesting thing that you don't really think about, or, you know, from our perspective, we don't think about it that often, is he was like, the next few days were just about suffering. You know, it was <laughs> just like in a sweatsuit, on the treadmill, running, suffering. And so it's just like a, a lot of sudden mental anguish, not really time to game plan for your opponent, not even time to really think about that. And it's a lot of sudden stress to deal with right before a fight. Uh, when you'd rather be thinking about, you know, the fight itself. And yeah. instead, you're just going through like this kind of torment mentally and physically of weight cutting. So, yeah. But, I mean, again, is what we're advocating here to institute some kind of same-day weigh-in or that you can only gain a certain percentage of the weight back? I mean, do we really want to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, it, I think it would certainly be healthier for everyone to kind of put some limitations on the weight cutting. But I mean, I think what we're kind of beating around the bush about here is that to do that now at this point drastically changes the sport yeah. uh, in a lot of different ways. So it would have to be something that uh, that you thought about for a long time, investigated as thoroughly as possible before you made a, a switch that drastic. But, you know, purely from a physical standpoint and from like a fighter health fighter safety point of view i i'm not sure that i would be totally against it i'm not sure that it's that it's an issue i really am beating the door down to change though either so uh, you're more concerned still about guys putting chemicals in their hair yeah chemicals yeah. in their hair and, and grease in their body i'm worried about guys rubbing themselves down with uh with powder and then taking a bath yeah. but then later i don't know we how spend so it. many sleepless nights worrying about it just alone <laughs> in the dark staring at the ceiling anyway you know, like uh, guys rubbing themselves down that is listener mail for this week if you have a question for us for future weeks questions comments concerns weird ben folks fan fiction that you want to send to us you can email us by going to the website comaineventpodcast.com click the handy link at the top of the page that says email the podcast and and uh you know send it in to us maybe you'll make a future episode some of that fan fiction is, is quality work uh you are listening to the co-main event podcast We'll be back in just mere seconds as we segue into round number one. Round one. Chad, can we talk about the UFC Hall of Fame here for a minute? I guess if we have to. Yeah, let's. I think we should. Uh, first of all, recently Brock Lesnar uh, and his possible case for the UFC Hall of Fame came back in the news when uh, uh, MMA junkies Danny Acosta talked to, to Paul Heyman, who said that he thought, of course, uh, Brock Lesnar was a UFC Hall of Famer, which then led yours truly to write a column with, with my opinions on why it's definitely not an of course, but also why kind of the bigger issue is why we even bother talking about you know the UFC Hall of Fame as if right. we have some kind of say in what goes into it. This, of course, caused much wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, on our website because if you, anytime you bring up Brock Lesnar's name, you're pretty much guaranteed to have a lot of strong feelings on both sides. For sure. Uh, my initial point, and the one that I will try and return us to here, was not you know, to get out there and say Brock Lesnar sucks, because obviously Brock Lesnar had a, had a good and memorable career, short though it was. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into whether or not it is was a great career, a Hall of Fame-worthy career. Mm -hmm. However, I feel like we always get tricked once we start having this conversation into start talking about when we say UFC or Hall of Fame-worthy uh, and whether he's a Hall of Famer, we get tricked into acting like the UFC Hall of Fame is a real thing. And it's not a real thing. Right. It's Employee of the Month. Yes. And I know, I know that some people will get really fired up about that. Uh, and say, no, it's, it's a real Hall of Fame. However, I mean, you look at who's in it and who's not in it, and you see that this is a company-controlled thing, right? not the way other Hall of Fames work, uh, not the way you know Major League Baseball works, not where there's a whole lot of voices all having their say, and then you know whoever the people are behind, whoever the, the voters are behind gets in. It doesn't work like that at all. So, I mean... Why do we do this just because there is no real MMA Hall of Fame? Do we yes. do it just because we love to argue about shit? 
Uh, I do it because as a writer, the Hall of Fame is handy when you're trying to quantify the greatness of a retired person like Randy Couture. You can just throw out, hey, Hall of Famer, Randy Couture. And when people read that, they're like, oh, this guy must have been good. (laughs) Uh, But no, you're right. And let's make the point to start off that, hey, man, the UFC can have its own Hall of Fame. That is fine. Totally. I'm all for it. You can put anybody they want in there. Ariane Celeste, boom. Like I said in the intro, those plaques are awesome. Yeah. Those glass etched plaques with yeah. pictures of Matt Hughes and Hoist Gracie on them are awesome. But to have a legitimate Hall of Fame, I think for any sport, you need to like have it voted on by, you know, some panel of whoever you like, preferably uh, independent voters, you know, yeah. not, not just people inside the company itself. And, you know, just to have a UFC Hall of Fame when MMA you know, at least in the past, was far broader than that. Yes. Uh, limits its uh, utility, I think, in terms of, of you know, its worth and, and how much attention we ought to be paid to it. Um, and, hey, if the, if the UFC did that, if the UFC decided that they wanted to extend, you know, voting rights to, to some independent, like, journalists or even, you know, fight camps or something like that, I'd be all for it, and I think that that would probably make it a little bit more weighty. I think that you know, being in the UFC Hall of Fame would would mean a little bit more if that was the direction that they wanted to go. You know, right now it's 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 kind of employee of the month. It's kind of like uh, certainly I don't think you could I don't think you could say that they've really abused it. Like I think the guys no. that they have in there are, are fine guys to have in there, but uh, at the same time, you know, if you're going to have a Hall of Fame, you would think that a dude like Fedor Emelianenko would have to be in there for an MMA or, Hall of Fame. Okay, yeah, or or a guy like Boss Rutten. Sure, or Pat uh, Militich. Pat Militich, absolutely. Uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff where uh, you realize, okay, and it, it's another one where you're like, okay, is it because you can look at Boss Rutten and be like, oh, yeah, he only had a couple of UFC fights, uh, but... You know, his career is obviously much larger than that. And right. you would say the same with, uh, you know, a lot of the guys who made their real careers in, in pride and then came over, you know, and had, you know, like. Yeah, Nogira, for instance. Yes. You know, Big Nog it probably hasn't done anything to justify a UFC Hall of Fame induction. But in an MMA Hall of Fame, I think he'd be a, a first ballot guy well and there's the if thing. there were if in there fact were ballots, ballots there's no ballot and see that's also the thing is that see we could argue about this stuff and i'm sure we'd come to some point where you would say this guy's a hall of famer and i would say fuck you chad you're crazy um but then you know and, we, and it would be a fun topic of discussion right but then in the end you know the the panelists the voters cast their ballots and that's what decides it right and then we know like at least that has some kind of sense of fairness it's not just like well, somebody, you know, behind the, the scenes there made a decision and boom, now this guy's in and that's that. And again, like you said, that the UFC has not abused that as far as bringing people in. I mean, I would say there's some people who they should recognize ought to be in there right now uh, if they're going to try and make it into a legit thing. But it's right now, as long as it's just going to be UFC controlled and UFC decides who gets in and who doesn't, then that's never going to be the way a real Hall of Fame is. Uh, and yet we still get tricked into talking about it. I mean, now, though, we come back around to Brock Lesnar. Right. We're talking about whether or not Brock Lesnar's career, 5-3 and three as a professional. 4-3 and three in the UFC. 4-3 and three in the UFC. I usually want to take away that Minsu Kim victory. If we're talking about the UFC Hall of Fame. Right, okay. Yeah. Right. Now, here's the analogy. The best argument I heard from anybody making the case that Brock Lesnar should be in the Hall of Fame. Yes. I did not hear too many people trying to forcefully make it on just merit of fights alone. Because that, that would be a losing argument. Because five and three, you know, I mean, he had some good wins there, but still 
not enough really for to say like that was a great career. Uh, you deserve a spot with the greats, a guy like you know Chuck Liddell or Matt Hughes or Randy Couture. The best argument I heard was, look what he did for the sport. Right. Look at what he did for the UFC. He came over there, brought a bunch of attention, brought a bunch of money, and he was kind of the, the rising tide that lifted all ships, um, which is an interesting argument. Mm-hmm. However, I just don't, I can't buy that that's what gets a guy into the sport hall of fame. Right. Is because he was, I mean, I guess he was famous. Uh, he brought a lot of attention. But it's like, to use a, a poor analogy... It'd be like if some big-time soccer player, uh, I'll use my limited soccer knowledge and say, say Mario Balotelli comes over. Is that a soccer player or a chef? Comes over to the NFL. David Beckham? is <laughs> a wide receiver you know, for the, for the Cleveland Browns or something. And does pretty well. At first, it's one of those things where everybody's like, oh, look how well he's doing for a guy who didn't grow up playing football. Uh, and then... He even has a couple solid seasons as as a as a starter uh, and almost every down kind of guy. Maybe even a team that that goes on and wins the Super Bowl. Uh, but let's say he only plays four or five seasons. The last one or two of which were kind of shitty. Right. Uh, and then everybody says, "But look, look how many international fans he brought outside the U.S. where people didn't really care that much about football. Look how many of those soccer fans started watching football and bought football merchandise. And look how that helped everybody." I would not say that that would qualify Mario Balotelli for a spot in in Canton and you with the with the NFL Hall of Fame. Would you would you disagree with that? I still think that's a chef, but uh, <laughs> I think there's a couple of different schools of thought on that when you're talking about actual legitimate halls halls of fame. Uh, you know, the the Baseball Hall of Fame I think certainly has a tendency to consider social issues a little bit more broadly than the Football Hall of Fame does. The Football Hall of Fame is more just like what did you do on the field? Uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame is a little bit more, you know, broad-based and, and I guess inclusive, you would say, even though it seems like it's – they're inclusive in what they consider, but more exclusive in who they, in who they keep out. But here's the, here's the important thing that needs to be considered if we're even going to talk about Brock Lesnar, if we're even going to talk about the UFC Hall of Fame. And it harkens back to what we said at the beginning of the round about voting and, uh, you know, the legitimacy of the Hall of Fame. And that is, if you're going to have a Hall of Fame of any kind, you need to have criteria. And it would seem, you know, from the outside looking in, that there is no criteria for the UFC Hall of Fame. Uh, Does the UFC like you? That's one of them. Yeah. I mean, at least no published criteria, because if you look at a guy who is in... Mark Coleman, he's in, right? Yeah. If you consider Mark Coleman's UFC career alone, I'm not sure that he's a legitimate Hall of Famer just from being the first ever UFC heavyweight champion. Now, if you consider that he went over to Pride and won the first Pride Openweight Grand Prix, I think then you have a little bit more of a compelling case. But uh, the point, I guess, being that if we're even going to have a Hall of Fame, if we're even going to have conversations about a Hall of Fame, you need to decide, A, what is the criteria that that you want to decide whether or not guys get in or out? And B, as a you know, as it relates to that, what kind of Hall of Fame do you want to have? Do you want to have a Hall of Fame where you know you get in for reasons 
other than just the fighting because, you know, Brock Lesnar being the UFC's biggest draw during a fairly important time in the sports history, I guess you could make that argument. But if it's just going to be about fighting, then, you know, Lesnar doesn't get in. And I think the other question about what kind of Hall of Fame you want to have that you that we all need to ask is, you know, how exclusive do you want it to be? Well, uh, if Mark Coleman is in, do you want Kevin Randleman to get in, another former UFC heavyweight champion? And, you know, if you're letting guys like that in, then maybe you make a better case for Lesnar. But if you have more of an exclusive of Hall of Fame where only the great the greatest of the greats yeah. get in then no man I don't even think that there's an argument to be made well for one thing if people want to go and look up uh, the UFC Hall of Fame page on UFC.com I recommend it solely for the sweet ass picture they have of Dan Severn up there Just another looking. guy where you're like okay if Dan Severn is in and hey Dan Severn one of the awesomest yeah. dudes like if you're voting if you're voting on an on an UFC's awesome dudes Hall of Fame Dan Dan Severn in every time. Yeah, but then you're like, okay, then you got to have Don Fry in. Well, yeah, you got if to. You, if you're having an awesome dudes Hall of Fame, Don, <laughs> Don Fry's a first ballot guy. He's a charter member. Well, there there's something though that makes it difficult about doing such a thing with uh, MMA with pro fighters because it's not like where baseball where they're like, okay, we'll wait a certain number of years after the guy's retirement because fighters, you know, you might retire two or three times and that would not be unusual. For a pro fighter, you know, especially one who had a great long career, like, yeah, they're going to think about retiring a couple times before they, they finally walk away, usually. So it's sometimes tough to tell, like, when do you, do you just take a handful of these guys from way back then and throw them all in there at once? Uh, do you wait at all? Like when Matt Hughes gets in and he's still, you know, technically an active fighter, that's kind of weird. Tito Ortiz gets in, like, the day of his last uh, UFC fight, which who knows? For all we know, Tito Ortiz might come back three, or, three or four years later, pop up, you know, fighting in St. Petersburg somewhere or something. Who knows? Uh, so that does make it a little tougher. But yeah, I mean, there's just a whole lot of like. And again, though, I feel like we want this to be more like regular sports halls of fame. Uh, I think you could broadly say that about almost anything involved in the mixed martial arts industry, as it relates to me. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's just not. I wonder if it's ever going to get there or if we're just going to still be sitting around here arguing about this five years from now. God, I hope so. (laughs) Co-Main Event Podcast, episode 1000. Yeah. By way of closing, let me just say that I feel like a little bit that that this this podcast got screwed a little bit in that uh, the Brock Lesnar era in the UFC predated the Co-Main Event Podcast because, man, I would have loved to be doing Co-Main Event Podcast episodes back when... Brock Lesnar was ruling the heavyweight division like a goddamn dark lord of the Sith. <laughs> that would have been awesome. Think of the huge numbers we would have done because he brought so much attention to the sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'd, We'd probably have a fucking deal with CNN right now if we had a, had this podcast back when Brock Lesnar was heavyweight champ. Yeah, or at least Fox News, something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, I'll spin it any way you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that probably will wrap up our discussion about Brock Lesnar and the UFC's Corporate Heavy uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, coming up right now, though, uh, you know, after another week off, I saw him in the back doing his stretches and his vocal warm-ups. Uh, the self-proclaimed world's leading theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock, is with you with us and uh we are going to do uh master tweet theater oh boy let's kick that off right now and now master tweet theater (laughs) 
And now the co-main event podcast welcomes back your friend and ours, noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am well. You sound very well. Uh, Vim and vigor. Well, okay. Uh, I guess for those of you who still don't know how this works, A, what the fuck is your problem? B, Sir Nigel is going to read us off five tweets from someone in the MMA community. Chad and I will attempt to guess who the tweeter in question is. Sir Nigel, are you ready? I am ready, sir. All right, hit us. Let us begin. What the fuck indeed. Tweet the first. Quote, And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you give. End quote. Paul McCartney, I like this. Uh, not sure that's an accurate quote of Paul McCartney. Pretty sure it's the love you take is equal to the love you make. Um, which, you know, (laughs) does sound better when you think about it. So, somebody who gets the lyrics wrong, but also is still inspired by them? To me, that rings with Josh Koscheck. Chad? Wow, really? Josh Koscheck? Um, Yeah, certainly the rhyming aspect would make it seem like your version of the Paul McCartney quote was more accurate. I'm gonna. I'm, I got a couple of options that I'm thinking about. A couple of people that that like to tweet secondhand quotes that they may or may not get right, and or may or may not know anything about the originator of the quote. That's like half the people in MMA. Yeah, but there's a couple of of, of perpetrators, of you know, common recidivists. I guess you would say. <laughs> um, I would think about going poet Philip Baroni here because certainly he's one of them. But I'm going to go the other way with the other person that I know that pretty much tweets inspirational sayings nonstop, and that is Ariane Celeste Lopez Garcia. <laughs> both fine guesses, and at least one of them racially charged, but both incorrect. It is Jeff the Snowman Monson. What? At Jeff Monson. <laughs> really? Jeff Monson? Really? Wouldn't, shouldn't Jeff Monson be like tweeting out black flag lyrics? and, Or at least quoting the other Lennon. <laughs> good point good point wow, Sir okay that, i'm surprised by that yeah well i guess you never know what you're gonna get on master tweet theater that's one of the great things about it uh i guess we'll just move right along and tempt fate some more <clears throat> tweet the second they're exceptions to every rule just don't let the exceptions become the rule in life whoa can i get a spelling on there yes it is <laughs> t-h-e-r-e there okay yeah. exceptions to every rule so it seems like maybe we're missing a the word r yeah but other than that i don't i'm confused so there are exceptions to every rule but the reception exceptions should not become the rule in life i don't know if i quite get that you got any insight on, on what this means no no i was just gonna i was just thinking that i think one of my problems here is that I just need to broaden my knowledge base of fighters who are on Twitter because I feel like I only know four and I use them every time. Uh, Let's see here. I'm going to go a little bit maybe outside the box here, and I'm going to say active tweeter John Fitch. Okay. John Fitch is an active tweeter. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would mess up, you know, leave out the R there, but it does seem like just cryptic enough to be maybe a John Fitch tweet. You know, I'm going to say, and for no reason at all, other than that I don't really understand this tweet, I'm going to say Manville Gamburian. Hmm. hmm. It is not Manville the Anvil Gamburian. Neither of these is correct. It is, in fact, noted MMA historical reenactor Rich Franklin. Huh. Okay. okay. All right. Yeah. 
I would also like to point out uh, that there is no exception to the rule. Every sentence must contain a verb. <laughs> I feel like these are some deep tracks. So yeah, far. I'm going to be really thinking about this Going one. off the beaten path yeah. for some of these Twitter accounts. <clears throat> Tweet the third. I fucking hair roosters. What the fuck? I fucking hair them. I hair roosters. Spell hair. H-A-R-E, a somewhat surprising hair roosters. Are we dealing with an autocorrect situation here, Chad? Is that what you're uh, thinking? That's, that's what I would assume. Okay. So let's, let's start, go off that assumption and assume somebody was trying to tweet, I fucking hate roosters. Yeah. Or I fucking harm roosters. Yeah. Well, or I hear roosters. I fucking hear roosters. Yeah. Like when you hear a rooster, you're like, I fucking hear a rooster. I fucking whore. Roosters? <laughs> I fucking heart roosters. All right. You know what? This is getting us nowhere. Um, so I'm just going to say, well, roosters, huh? Who might live in a neighborhood other than you, Chad, right. where they would hear roosters? Uh, shit. Ronda Rousey. Whoa. Yeah. Um, Chris Lytle? I don't know. Might live near a farm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Both noted bird haters, both incorrect. It is, in fact, the poet Philip Baroni. Son of a bitch. The words of the poet echoing among our ears once again. Well, now it could have been any of the possible variations about how he feels about roosters. Yeah, it might not even be a literal rooster. It could be (laughs) some kind of street lingo we're not even savvy to at this point. Again, this edition of Master Tweet Theater creates so many questions and so few answers. Mm-hmm. Tweet the fourth. <clears throat> Twelve straight hours of sleep and ready to kick today in the face! What's today's name, actually? Oh, that's kind of scary uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, 12 hours of sleep. I mean, yeah, I guess you do wake up fully rested and ready to kick something. And also, apparently, maybe so uh, zonked out that you don't know what day it is. Um... I would have said Poet Filiberoni on that, but Jesus Christ. Uh, instead, I'm going to say... I'm going to say Miguel Torres. Hmm. Uh, I'm probably going to be wrong about this, but this guy seems to tweet a lot about waking up in the morning uh, and also what... It's a he, relatable experience. ...what he's about to go do. I'm going to guess Chris Lieben, even though typically he seems to know what day it is. I'm, has Chris Lieben ever kicked anyone in the face? Oh. Well, he's oh. like, he's not, I mean, I'm not saying, like, he's just not a head kicker, really. Yeah, but he seems capable, right? Okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure if, like, I stood there and was like, you can't kick me in the face, Chris Lieben, the next thing I'm going to feel is a shin across my skull, but, okay. And, Sir Nigel? No, no, it is, in fact, C.R. Bahardazada. Ah. C.R. the Great, at C.R. the Great. Oh. See, now, if he had said he was going to wake up Get some Starbucks. Yeah, go to Starbucks. That would have tipped me <laughs> then off. Then we would have known it was CR. Okay. All right. Last one. Here we go. All right. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Sleepover with my mom and sisters. And no, I won't put up a pic, ya effin' freaks. Night. <laughs> I like the inflection you put on there at the end. That's See, that's the difference that it makes when you get a real theatricalist in here, Chad. You just wanted to get some bum off the street. I said, no, let's spend the extra money and get an actor now it's paying off. $15 well spent, sir. <laughs> okay, well, obviously, I think we're dealing with a ring girl here. Uh, I mean, and 
the only question really is which ring girl I know the popular choice would be Ariane Celeste Lopez Garcia Benchimal. Uh I'm gonna say instead, just because I, I don't I don't feel like it could be that obvious, I'm gonna say Brittany Palmer. I think it is in fact that obvious because I know that she likes to tweet a lot about her mom and sister. How do you know that? Uh I can't comment on that at this time. Um I am gonna go Ariane Marie Celeste uh Concepcion Lopez. You are correct, oh, sir. Damn it. It is the muse of herstory, Ariana Ariana Celeste. Well, is it am I the only one that thinks maybe that tweets just sounds like somebody jaded by the experience of Twitter? That she knows she cannot mention how she's gonna be hanging out with her mom and sister in a sleepover and, and not have a bunch of people wanting to see gross pics? Because that's I feel like that's maybe Ariane Celeste has learned that humanity is at least on Twitter kind of a sad ordeal. Yeah, but I would point out that you don't have to tweet that you're at a sleepover okay. with your mom and sister. So okay. if you are indeed feeling jaded, maybe just, you know, shut the phone off for that <laughs> night. Well, all right. I think we've all learned some important lessons and a lot of other useless crap on this edition of Master Tweet Theater. Sir Nigel, uh, what, what do you got going on? Well, sir, I will be appearing in the theatrical production of Free Willy. I play a scientist who believes that a whale can survive just as well on land. You know, nah, you know, screw it. We're not going to even go into that one. You don't even want to know where, do you? <laughs> Fine, where is it? It's at Hooters! God damn it. <laughs> I produced it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for this edition of Master Tweet Theater and possibly for Sir Nigel's run as a non-incarcerated member of society. I'm telling you, we should think about getting a street bum in here, <laughs> one that can read. I think, just think of the possibilities. Well, we'll, we'll look at the quarterly reports and see what, what our budget looks like. Till next time, that's it for this edition of Master Tweet Theater. Round two. Ben, the odds against Vitor Belfort at UFC 152 are pretty staggering. I know you've got them in front of you, so why don't you tell the people what they are as of this recording? As of this recording, you can find a pretty good range anywhere between 5 to 1 to as high as plus 625, just a little over uh, 6 to 1. For those of you uh, who don't understand how the odds works, uh, a plus 625 line on Vitor Belfort means that if you bet $100 on Vitor Belfort and by the grace of fucking Jesus he won that fight, you would win $625. Uh, however, also, if you look at John Jones, the odds that John Jones wins this, we're looking somewhere around, the more generous ones are around 8 to 1 uh, and verging into the 9 to 1 range uh, after that. Which seems, honestly... A little generous. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, now, these odds are not necessarily historic because no. uh, I think last week I, I wrote an article for ESPN.com, which I, I'm sure is still up at the homepage. If you want to go find it, scroll down a little no, I bit. Heard, I heard they spiked that. They you'll, felt it was a disgrace. You'll find it um, about this issue. Uh, the, the longest odds that I could find just from a little bit of looking around were uh, actually Sokaju when he fought Little Nog in Pride. I think Sogaju was something like two and one as a professional and was coming off a loss. Uh, 
came into pride, I think on short notice, he was like something like a 16 to one underdog in that Jesus. fight and ended up winning, of course. Yeah. Uh, and the other longest odd I could find were uh, that Cyborg came into her fight against Jan Finney uh, at, oh. at Strike Force as uh, minus 2,500. And then proceeded to, to beat on Jan Finney like she was beating the hell out of one of the Hanson kids. Yeah, in Just retrospect. blonde hair flying everywhere. In retrospect, the big bet that I put down on Jan Finney that night was probably not the greatest move. Yeah. No. Uh, but your, your daughter better get a, a scholarship, let's just say, if she wants to go to college, thanks to your, your, your gambling habits. Correct. Um, in terms of like a UFC main event, though, you have to do a little bit of digging to find... A, a matchup that at least the odds makers seem to think is quite this lopsided. I know that Frankie Edgar was something like six to one. Yeah, BJ Penn was a seven to one favorite over Frankie Edgar the first time they fought. Yeah, and the same I think is true of Matt Serra when he came into the uh, to the to right. the to the fight with GSP at UFC sixty nine. Um, I think he was six or seven to one underdog. So not not historic in terms of of being the biggest statistical long shot of all time. So let me pose this question to you. If Vitor Belfort goes out there and and lands the left hand heard round the world and knocks John Jones out cold, which frankly would be a performance from Vitor Belfort that we have not seen since like UFC 11, uh, <laughs> would that constitute in your mind the biggest upset in UFC history? Yes, absolutely. I would say it's the biggest upset in UFC history. Uh, and not just because of the odds thing. I think the weight class thing yeah, uh, yes. makes it the the biggest upset. Because it was like, you know, with Matt Serra, at least it fit some kind of a storyline. It was the Ultimate Fighter comeback season, you know. And he, man, he came back. Yes, he did. Uh, it was a cute little reality show gimmick there for a little while. <laughs> and then he knocked George St. Pierre the yeah, fuck out. That's right. Uh, so, you know, at least that, though, it was welterweight on welterweight violence. Whereas this... Sort of. Yeah, I mean, Matt Serra, you could make the case Matt Serra should have been a lightweight, but... <laughs> well, you know, he, he likes that pasta. Yeah, but don't we all? Yeah. But see, this one, not only... It's, you have the weight class thing, you've got that no one expects Vitor Belfort to win, and then you've got the just kind of like whatever nature of the matchmaking, where they were just kind of like, well, we need somebody. We need a warm body. Uh, who wants it? Who will step up and take it? Vitor Shit, okay, all right, I guess. I guess it's got to be Vitor. They throw him in there. And then if he wins that, uh, then yeah, it seems, I mean, that's shocking the world right there. For sure, yeah. No, uh, I agree with you. I think that obviously the, the second biggest upset in UFC history w was that Matt Serra knockout of, uh, of George St. Pierre. But if Vitor goes out there in this fight where, you know, it's essentially a middleweight fighting a heavyweight and not just any sort of large light heavyweight, but a guy who appears to be a generation or two advanced beyond the yeah. point where even the other best light heavyweight fighters in the world are. Uh, yeah, if, if Vitor somehow came out and pulled that off, it would it would be the biggest upset in UFC history. Um, I guess the second half of this question is. Would that be the best case scenario for UFC 152 or the worst case scenario for UFC 152? Well, I don't know. For the, for the event itself, it would at least maybe drive home this thing that, that hey, you never know what's going to happen in yeah. the UFC. Which I think has been one of the, the best and worst things at times. More best than worst uh, for MMA in general and for the UFC. The fact that with MMA, with the small gloves, you know... You're out there sword biting, basically. Anybody can get stuck. 
You know, it, you just never know. It, it can happen. Boxing doesn't really have that as much anymore. Uh, you know, so it. I think that is an appeal, and it keeps people buying the pay-per-views rather than just saying, oh, well, look at this fight on paper. I know who's going to win. I don't have to watch it. Uh, you know, I'll just read about it the next day or watch some highlights or something wherever I can see them. Uh, it does inject that, that uncertainty that I think people liked on some level. However... I, MMA has also been criticized for it, particularly like in the heavyweight division, where it's just like, hey, they can't ever build a champion right. uh, because the belt keeps getting passed around too much. In this case, though, uh, I don't feel like it would be a hurt or it would hurt the UFC at all if that happened. I think it would be just crazy enough that then you could sell people on a rematch. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it would also feel like, you know, John Jones had basically run over a gypsy with his car or something and now was a, a, a cursed UFC commodity. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, again, though, I think that when you look at, at this fight, though, and you see those odds, the thing that it tells you is it's basically the odds maker saying like, yeah, this really shouldn't be a main event title fight. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. The thing is, we all talk about that time that you that Matt Sarah beat George St. Pierre at UFC 69 uh, when he when he was a six to one underdog. You know, what we never talk about is that time George St. Pierre fought Dan Hardy <laughs> when Dan Hardy, I think, was a five to one underdog. And we don't talk about it because Dan Hardy didn't win. You know, Dan Hardy went out and got pretty much destroyed from pillar to post by George St. Pierre. And if Belfort goes out and gets cold cocked by John Jones and John Jones does some video game shit like we all expect him to, we're not going to remember this main event, uh, you know, next year. Unless, you know, John Jones does some crazy spinning, flipping, double knee, elbow, knockout thing that'll be on highlight tapes for the rest of our lives. But, but, but see, even that, that's why this is a bad deal like even more so for John Jones is because what would he have to do? Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> for, yeah. for people to be like, okay, all is forgiven, John Jones. That was awesome. Because yeah. even if he goes out there immediately and just elbows Vitor in the head and Vitor falls down, everybody's just like, see, this fight was bullshit to begin with. And we all said it beforehand. And this is just the proof. I mean, it, it puts him in just kind of a no-win situation there. Yeah, and that's why I'm saying that the Belfort win is the best-case scenario because if it doesn't happen, you know, UFC 152 a year from now is probably just a punchline. It's that, do you remember that one time that, that they put Vitor out there with John Jones and he destroyed him? But then the, the real bummer here is that it we're not even talking about the first-ever flyweight title fight in right. the UFC, right. Demetrius Johnson versus Joseph Benavidez, which... Honestly, on paper, it looks like it's going to be a hell of a fucking fight. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And frankly, John Jones versus Vitor Belfort, I think, is somewhat fun, even though it's going to be an absolute bulldozing. I think that made that word up. I don't think bulldozing is probably a word, but sure, this is sure, not a fight. Works. So there you go. Yeah, but, but, but Johnson Benavidez, I mean, that that's a legitimate title fight. It's going to be, you know, tons of action. Yeah. You know, you know yes. how those little guys fight. Yes. Uh, it's going to be just like a little tornado swirling around the cage. like, And, I mean, it just kind of bums me out that because of all the stuff that happened with the UFC 151 and this fight getting to John Jones getting moved to this one, uh, now those guys kind of get knocked down. I mean, maybe people will tune in to see John Jones do whatever the fuck he's going to do and they end up staying and realizing that flyweights are kind of awesome. I know Joseph Benavidez told me that he's hoping that that happens. Hopefully it does uh, because otherwise it kind of sucks for those guys. Yeah, it does. 
Um, we got some emails this week, people wondering what happened to a recurring feature that we used to do on the podcast, Tips for the Well-Rounded Fight Fan. Uh, people wondering if that was ever going to come back. And for those people who emailed us, yes, it's going to come back right now. Boom! This is the part of the show where Ben and I both give suggestions for you, the listener, about how to better enrich your lives, be uh, better individuals by some 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 actions or products you can consume that have nothing to do with MMA, but are nonetheless worth your time. Uh, Ben, what what do you have for everyone this week? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I finally took action on your one, maybe even your very first well-rounded fight fan suggestion. uh, The novel, the sisters brothers uh, about two old West hitmen on an adventure together. Mm -hmm. uh, And goddamn, that's a good Good novel. Yeah, uh, that's that awesome. That's an awesome book. Probably the best novel I've read this year. However, since I can't really recommend that, since you already did it, uh, I am going to recommend a different, much, much older book that I picked up and perused recently uh, off of my bookshelf when I wanted to use a line out of it to, to kick off one of my columns. Uh, that book is by the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, Roman Emperor. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> around... Uh, 160 uh, AD uh, or so, and uh, Marcus Aurelius was actually an awesome dude and philosopher, uh, wrote down all his thoughts in a book called Meditations, uh, where not only can you sit there and it's a Roman emperor talking directly to you uh, in a book that he wrote while on campaign in the the wild frontier of Europe, uh, but it's also just awesome stuff, where you crack open a bottle of wine, you sit down with that book, and uh, Marcus Aurelius is going to teach you how to be a better person living a, a more meaningful life. Seriously, go out there, pick it up. It's one of the rare philosophy texts I, uh, from that long ago, I find, where you read it and you feel totally engaged the whole time. It should be noted that when I said Jesus Christ, I meant it as an expletive. Uh, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius, not Jesus Christ. No, not the same dudes. Kind of around the same area, era. But I, hey, if you want to live your life by a book... I think you could do uh, a lot worse than to choose Marcus Aurelius's meditations. I, I mean, if I have to, if I have to choose a, a Bible, I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to shift gears a little bit from what we normally do in tips for the well-rounded, rounded fight fan. We usually do books. You know, I think I've done, uh, art, uh, periodical articles in the past, maybe a movie here and there. Uh, this week, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan, fatherhood, man, Whoa. Check it out. Now, I'm not saying go out there and, and knock up any girl. It's kind of what it sounded like you were you saying. Uh, but I, I, I'm about uh, six days into this whole fatherhood thing, and it's pretty awesome. And for me, before my wife actually expelled our daughter into the world, painfully, I might add, uh, <laughs> at the hospital last weekend, I was a little nervous. I was a little bit trepidatious about this whole fatherhood thing because, uh, I, you know, I had a hard time imagining what it was going to be like. And I had a hard time conceptualizing it as a real thing. And I, and I worried, would I like my daughter or would I just view her as an imposition in my life? And I can say that all of the cliched stuff that they say about when you see your child is true, because as soon as I laid eyes on that squalling little muskrat of a slick, weird looking crushed up face, I thought, yeah, my daughter's the awesomest thing in the world. So, uh, fatherhood, check it out. Um, it's also my tip for a well-rounded fight fan because it's the only goddamn thing I've been doing for about the last two <laughs> months. So, there you have it. Um, those are our tips. Uh, we'll do it again, maybe next week, maybe not. We'll see. Uh, right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number three. <laughs> 
round three. The Ultimate Fighter Part 2 begins this Friday as it uh, the UFC's popular reality show begins its second ever season on the FX network. The live format, I guess, has been scrapped. We're back to basics. Uh, just doing what we do, I guess, and bringing in uh, two, I think, pretty entertaining heavyweights in Shane Carwin and uh, Roy Nelson to be the coaches for this for this season. Uh, but Ben, after the first season of The Ultimate Fighter, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that it flopped a little bit ratings-wise uh, on FX. What are the stakes for season two? If this season fails to make a dent in the ratings, is this the season where we can con- can conclusively say, okay... This shit ain't working anymore. Honestly, I feel like you kind of could have said that at least about the Friday night time slot after the last one. Okay, let me rephrase. Is this the season where the UFC finally says, (laughs) okay, this shit ain't working anymore? Well, you know, I think that a lot of it is going to have to be a decision with FX because being on FX is not like being on Spike TV where you can kind of say, all right, give us all day Saturday to run whatever the hell we want, or give us this, you know, you you can't pick and choose your, your time slots as much because FX actually has, like, actual shows on them and stuff, and as anybody who has seen that ad that will run uh, during uh, UFC events, FX got the movies. Uh, so, yeah, they, they do have uh, other shit to run. Uh, but for me, I, I do feel like if the UFC realizes hey, this thing has just gotten too stale. It's just the same thing over and over again. Like, I don't know that that would be enough. Like, I think they've tried all the changes that they're going to make. I, I don't think that that's enough for them to pull the plug entirely because I think it's just too easy. Yeah. Uh, and what it gives them is, you know, just this kind of steady stream of dudes who uh, people know, people are recognizable to some people anyway, whatever, however many people watch the show, and who are also in kind of shitty contracts for them. Uh, at least at the start. So it's kind of a good, cheap talent deal for the UFC. Yeah, you wouldn't think that dudes people know would be that big of a drawing card for the UFC at this point. But, you know, the way the the, the lineups for a lot of these recent cards have been looking, dudes people know are a pretty hot commodity. (laughs) Yes, and especially when you have so many fight cards to fill, you need some dudes people know. The problem is the fewer... People who watch the show, the fewer people who know the dudes. Right. And also, as you, I think, alluded to at the top of the show, it does feel like we're just watching the same. Like, even if it's a new season, new formats, new coaches, whatever, it feels like the same guys, more or less. Like, I'm looking right now, I'm looking at the new cast picture, uh, and I'm like, okay, okay, there's the dude who's going to wear the weird hat. Uh, there's the guy who dyes his hair in kind of a weird way. There's the dude who looks like he might actually be good. You know, like <laughs> you just feel like like I've I've been on this this three hour cruise before. You know, I've I've seen these faces before. Basically, I've seen you know the kind of things that are going to play out. There's going to be some coach antics. You know, Roy Nelson's impertinent attitude is yeah. is going to rub against you know serious guy Shane Carwin the wrong way. I mean, I just feel like you can see it all unfolding, and that especially on a Friday night, you want me to sit down on a Friday night and watch that? And I don't think so. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about this before you just brought it up, but I would have much rather, instead of a season of The Ultimate Fighter, would have rather seen a sitcom 
where Roy Nelson and Shane Carwin are roommates. Yeah. Maybe they own a pizzeria together. Yeah. I was going to say car wash, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, car wash pizzeria. You know, Shane Carwin is the straight-laced accountant type <laughs> who wants to run the pizzeria by the book, and Roy Nelson is the wild and crazy, yeah. you know, Kramer-style yeah. guy who comes into the room different every time. <laughs> oh, man, that would be funny. Anyway. Man, uh, what if they were both interested in the same woman? Well, now, oh, oh no! Now you've got drama. A sexy neighbor, perhaps. Yeah. Now you've got drama. So, uh, we talked about this before, and if there's anything you could even do to this show to make it to make it seem fresh, because as you were just saying a minute ago, like last season, uh, you know, unfortunately, the the con- eventual winner, I guess, Michael Chiesa, uh, his dad died like right at the beginning of of the last season of the Ultimate Fighter, and when you saw the episode, it was just kind of like. I kind of feel like we've seen this before. I feel like that, as you said, there's no guy that they can have on there that that is going to surprise you in terms of like personality or antics. And there's almost no plot line they could do that doesn't feel like it's just a bunch of other episodes of The Ultimate Fighter yeah. edited together to make a new episode of The Ultimate <laughs> Fighter. Plus, I just feel like I've been in that house for so long. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've been stuck there. Or I've been in that gym with the big-ass tires. Uh I you know you just feel like a sense of fatigue from it all. Like, I just don't want to go back there, man. I don't. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that it kind of seems to me like it's been a while since this show produced like a contender, right? Yeah. Like, who, I mean, Court McGee seems like he's okay, right? Yeah. But I mean, when you talk about you know guy, especially you know guys who have won a title, you got Forrest Griffin, you got Rashad Evans. Is that it? I think that's it, right? From the Ultimate Fighter. Yeah, I think so. Unless we're forgetting somebody. And then you talk about, you know, Kenny Florian. Well, was Matt it? Sarah. Oh, boom. Right there. You know what, Call though? back to earlier in the show. If, if, if there was anything the UFC could do to get me interested in, in the Ultimate Fighter again, another comeback season, I swear to God, that I would be totally into. I think there's so many dudes out there who, it, that would feel like being reunited with old friends, kind yeah, of. Yeah. Bring some of those guys back. You know, maybe the poet Philip Baroni gets in there. Uh I mean, I'm just saying. I'm spitballing ideas here. Don't hey, don't roll your eyes at me. If they do a comeback season, and the poet Philip Baroni is not on the cast, I'm boycotting. I am not <laughs> watching. So think about that, UFC tough producers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying, like that would actually feel somehow meaningful. Like these guys who have been there and kind of dropped out the bottom, and then we're going to give them another shot. See, you know, maybe who we turned our back on prematurely. Uh, otherwise, though, I think one of the problems is that the the UFC right now has a ton of fights, have a ton of events on already. And so before when it was – I remember when you and I first saw like that first ad for the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. And we were like sitting around in your basement when we were in grad school, probably watching pro wrestling. Uh, and we saw the ad for the first season of The Ultimate Fighter like, dude, there's going to be a fight every week. Like, not a week will go by that you won't get to see at least one fight, even yeah. though you'll get pumped for Chris Lee and Josh Koscheck, and it'll be kind of a boring fight. Yes. But still, like, that was so exciting then, because there just weren't as many events, they were spread out a lot more, and so it was like, the idea of being able to just, you know, get to see a whole buildup in one fight a week, like, that made it so that I was always, since I did not have cable, was always right there at your apartment, right on time, ready to watch that thing. Yeah, wow, don't remind me of that. <laughs> And then I'd hang around for a little while afterwards to see if you had any snacks. 
<laughs> but you know that that that's not the case anymore. That yeah. that was then. This is now. Now there are a ton of fights. There's no real shortage of events. So when you're asking people, okay, now stay home to see some guys who you're only going to find out about, you know, a few minutes before they fight. Uh, and stay home on a Friday night to watch that when, hey, odds are we'll have an event on Saturday anyway. Uh, it's a much tougher sell. Yeah. I've always, for years, I mean, I, since the, almost the very beginning of The Ultimate Fighter, I've questioned, like, how how what how useful of a tool it is to actually converting new fans to the sport just because i've always thought if you're just some guy joe schmo you don't know what it is and you're just flipping around the dial and eventually you land on two guys fighting in a warehouse you know <laughs> amid this kind of like awkward silence where a bunch of guys appear to be sitting on a tiny bleacher kind of watching them like <laughs> what, what do you even find a bleacher that small? yeah like what do you even think about that if you're my mom or you know somebody's uncle who doesn't never seen the sport before you <laughs> is the first thing you think like oh shit i need to see more of this <laughs> like i don't know man I, I but i guess it works and i'm not a television executive so what do i know really uh anyway before we wrap up the show just like we always do about this time just saying stuff the recurring segment on the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to defend, not asked to support with evidence in any way, because when it's all said and done, man, we're just two guys in a room just saying stuff. Just saying. We're just saying. What are you going to just say this week? I'm going to just say that, of course, when you ask Paul Heyman what he thinks of Brock Lesnar's career, of course he's going to say that... It was an awesome career deserving of Hall of Fame honors because, A, he and Brock Lesnar are boys uh, in much the same way if somebody asked me if Chad Dundas is a good writer. Uh, and especially if I had a couple cocktails, I'm going to say Chad Dundas is the best writer ever. Wow, um, okay, well, thanks. But also, part B, because if he displeased Brock Lesnar, Brock Lesnar might eat him. Yeah, and you know what? I'm I, just saying. I like Paul Heyman. Yes, but, so do I. But like the first thing I think when I think Paul Heyman is not straight shooter. <laughs> not like, <laughs> well, oh, this is a guy I need to go to to get the scoop. He's going to give me the straight, yeah, I mean, honest I, dope. I don't feel like he's going to try and you know and snow you unnecessarily. But I mean, he and Brock Lesnar are boys. They're 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 tight. So of course he's going to take a favorable view of Brock Lesnar's career. You know, not hating on Paul Heyman for doing that. Uh, I'm just saying that. Maybe a guy in that position is obligated to take a, a very generous view of Brock Lesnar's career. I'm just saying. Yeah, it might actually have been news if they'd asked Paul Heyman. He was like, no, you know what? I don't really think so. I don't know, he was good, but great? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Now, ordinarily, this would be the time where I would just say stuff. But out of the goodness of my heart this week, I'm going to give someone else the opportunity to oh. just say stuff at the end of this program because, frankly, this quote was just too good to pass up. And I believe we would be remiss if I didn't read it on the on the podcast. And I guess from, off the top, I should say that we need to thank Matt Erickson from MMA Junkie because this quote came out of his story. So, Wait, are you, are you adopting a character for the sake of this quote? I, I'm, not sure, into I'm not sure I'm going to do a character. I just feel like the guy, this person was so just saying stuff. <laughs> okay, all that, right. That he I deserves like a mention. I like this twist. And the person this week who was just saying stuff is Strike Force president. Is he even still the president? CEO? I think, he's, the, I think he's officially Okay, so cool. Strike Force CEO Scott Coker. I see where who, this is going. When asked about his decision to have Lorenz Larkin fight Luke Rockhold for the Strike Force middleweight title instead of putting Jacare Souza back in another championship fight, had this to say. I feel really good about this fight because Lorenz, to me, honestly, is probably the most dangerous striker in MMA right now. <laughs> Okay. Scott Coker, ladies and gentlemen, just 
saying stuff. He is just saying stuff right there. And that's one of those situations where the inclusion of the word honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where, uh, like, when you're, when you're talking to somebody and you're saying, like, you know, I truly believe. Right. And then you make a statement. If you really believed it, you probably wouldn't need to tack on the truly belief. Just hit us with it. You that's, know? Anyway, that's Scott Coker just saying stuff. And that's going to do it for us this week. You've been listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from USA Today and MMA Junkie. Uh, until next week, we're done. We're out. We are finished. Hey, we're going to give people Hall of Fame nods for contributions to the sport. Yeah. I feel like Shoney Carter has a place in Mr. the swagger wing of the Mr. Hall of Fame. International. I guess if we're going to put Rock Logan in the Jack Blake's beef jerky wing, yeah. we put Shoney Carter in the International. Wingstones is all around his picture in there. Yeah. Mikey Burnett in there.